everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Mike, we're in summer. I've been I've been watching a lot of movies. And one of the movies that I, that I saw recently was the new Batman vs. Superman Ultimate Edition on HBO Max. If Superman were here, what would you want to say to him? That my family too had dreams. To look him in his eye and ask him how he decides which lives count and which ones do not. How was that? I didn't get to watch that. I didn't get to watch it. Was that good? It's three hours and three minutes, and they have some extra scenes. So here's my verdict. Much better than the first one. So what does that say about director's cuts? It says that most of the times, long-form films, three hours long, sometimes need to be done. This whole idea that we need to see hour and a half movies or just two hour movies or maybe even two hours and 30, sometimes certain movies and certain stories just have to be told in three hours. And this was so much better. You understood Lois Lane a lot better with the connection he had with Superman. Batman's desire to kill Superman seemed much better. The Martha thing had more context, but I thought that these director cuts might actually be a thing moving forward. Well, I, I, th- I think it's more than a thing. I think it's been around for a long time, and I think that generally, you know, when you see the director's cut, whether it's a director's cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture or the director's cut Or a of, Kubrick cut. Or, or a Kubrick. Well, Kubrick is one of those directors who pretty much had his own way, but it really, only certain directors can get to have final cut. Because it's a it's a money thing, you know. If you keep it under two hours or just a little over two hours, you can sell more popcorn. So and you sell more tickets. So it makes more money. But if you're a Quentin Tarantino, you know, or a, a mm-hmm. you know Paul Thomas Anderson, you might be able to get to show the film the way you intended. But if you're not, and especially in the case of Snyder, where his vision wasn't exactly taking off for the Warner Brothers, so. Mm-hmm. They felt, you know, it's a summer movie. Let's get more people in there. And he supposedly he left because he had a family uh, situation and they brought in. Oh, a uh, death in the family. I think it was uh, yeah, a, death in the family. a child or something. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's a shame. I really would like to see it because every time I've seen the director's cut and I could name at least a half a dozen films, it's always better it's because always better. it's a complete vision. Yeah. It's always better. And then I got a chance to see Get Out again. Us. Just saw it last night. And Sorry to Bother You from Bootsy Collins. What a trippy film, dude. Holy smokes. Uh, Talk about social commentary and psychedelic storytelling. After Floyd, all movies look different to me. And I think most movies that I've seen that have dealt with some sort of racial tone should be watched again within that filter because there's more resonance. You understand it deeper. And also with the knowledge that you and I have been, you know, learning and researching and discussing, you know, in this podcast, I have a deeper contextual understanding of the writing behind a lot of these. It's a thing, man. I think I think rewatching a lot of these movies, there's a value to that almost. Well, I I think there's always a value because, you know, you could watch a movie that you watched at a certain point in your life. It meant something to you. You watch it again. You're like, wow, that was that is I look at this very differently now, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are lots of films we can look at, you know, Gone let's with just the say wind, from, et cetera, et cetera. Well, forget Gone with the Wind, but yeah, but there are a lot of films you could look at with a different social context, whether it's how females are portrayed, uh, how black characters or Latino characters are written. But I think Get Out did something that people didn't realize you could do. And it really mm-hmm. reminded people of the potential of horror. The potential of, and when I say potential of horror, in that it can be social commentary. Name another, name another horror film that you can think of that was really strong social commentary. If black creators are given the chance Absolutely. to have studio platforms to tell their stories, you'd be surprised how amazing uh, we are. Whether it's Latinx or black, Jordan Peele was a great study that given the power of a, you know, Universal Studios, 
magical things can happen. How many more blacks and Latino creators are there out there that have not been able to tell their stories because white people sometimes just don't want to hear it? Much more like Chuck said about music, they don't want to empower truth. Well, yeah, they don't. And and here's the thing, though, about a movie with a strong perspective. Okay, you know, you always hear me talk about science fiction, horror, and and comedy. The relation is that they can speak about the human condition. A movie like Get Out made you think. It made especially people who are not people of color, especially people. For for me, as a black person, there are moments in that movie that you know I understood every inkling of that film even the opening scene when he is walking down the street and the guy comes over to bother him okay i just keep on walking i don't do nothing stupid just keep on i've had that experience i've had the experience of being late at night in a white neighborhood walking along trying to find a friend's house and hearing somebody go that's a horror movie that's horror you never really get to see on screen yeah you know jason's one thing but a white supremacist a a, a racist person who who can outnumber you that's a scary that's a horror movie that any person of color uh can be living at any given day in america we should probably start reviewing movies and tv shows moving forward man well i think we have to review movies and tv shows i don't think we should i think we have to matter of fact i did a a panel last week oh yeah how did it go what was it uh well it was a panel on the the importance of uh black film critics you know i i gave them the hashtag uh black critics matter okay when you tell a story especially a story through that lens of black or Latino, and then you have someone who doesn't get it, review it, they're not going to understand. They're not going to see things that you and I would see. They're not going to notice things. There are things that have existed forever that, that people of color have talked about forever. I don't just mean stereotypes. I don't just mean cliches and tropes, just things that are subtle, perhaps unconscious, okay, or things that are really significant and people don't realize just how significant that is. Yes, yes. So Get Out is a great example to me. Uh, And I think we're, we're about to enter this era where we're seeing things, you know, America has to relook at itself, period. It has to. And, and allowing all these creators of color to create content that's not just content for right. people of color but it's content that rep that represents what's going on it shows them you know because there's no better way to teach than through story and with that said how's about we jump into the news Trump launched through an executive order uh, not too long ago, a the Hispanic Prosperity Initiative. And this initiative is a new advisory commission that was created by the administration, which is tasked with increasing Hispanic access to economic and educational opportunities. Now, this is a great thing, but it had never really been done before. I'm always very weary of these initiatives. Uh, as you know, Viva Broadway was an initiative that I created. I think a lot of people like to have them to say that, hey, we did something, but they really don't do much. So they invited many Hispanic Americans uh, in the country, and one of them was Robert Unanue, the CEO and owner of, co-owner of Goya. While he was on the podium, he said, we're all truly blessed at the same time to have a leader like President Trump, who is a builder. And this received tremendous backlash almost immediately Uh, from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Julian Castro, even Lin-Manuel Miranda was supporting a boycott Goya. Then Unana went on Fox News and said that that this whole backlash was a suppression of free speech. Mm -hmm. This brought to light two things to me. One, Hispanic identity. And what happens when you're a Hispanic and a Hispanic supports the thing that you dislike the most? How do you wrap your head around that when they, your community that's being assaulted? And by the way, let's get into it. DACA, Trump's been, Trump's agenda of expunging Obama's DACA has been on his uh, agenda lists for a while now. 
immigrant kids in cages, Puerto Rico left to rot during Hurricane Maria, the antagonism of Mexico for the last four years. There's reasons to not like Trump if you're a Hispanic. So for Robert Unano to say that really put me at odds because I particularly eat Goya a lot. I've been eating since I was a kid until now. And for me to not eat it anymore because this guy said this about Trump was something that I really had to reflect. And I said, it's just a can and there's food in it. What do I care what this guy says? You know, I won't support him if he runs for president, but let me eat my beans. I'm fighting for something much bigger. I'm fighting for a community that is being constantly reduced to nothing. Uh, John Leguizamo said this many times, uh, Hispanic life in America is cheap. And so when we're treated like cheap and then once a year they applaud us because of this initiative for a photo op, no, I don't believe it. And for him to support that at that level was something that I felt like I needed to take a stance on. You got you to gotta stand for something at least in your life. And I'm standing for this. So I'm not buying Goya anymore. I'm not throwing the cans. Everybody's been like, oh, don't throw the cans. Give it to a food bank and buy a different product. So that's what I'm going to be doing. Well, I'm very glad to hear you say that because I do think it's a bigger issue. I think it's, I think, you know, we live in an age and we've talked about this on the show where, you know, it's ironic for him to say, oh, freedom of speech. Sure. He's free to say what he wants. Okay. He's free to praise a president who's done more harm to Latinos than any other president in history. But we're also free to not buy his product. What did your friend say? Well, you know, it's interesting because I have some friends who were like, oh, no, I stopped buying Goya a long time ago when, you know, other stuff had happened. He had said other stuff. They knew. Uh, and then I had some friends, you know, who just, they, they feel like you. They feel that, that Latinos will get treated like crap and then still kiss the hand of the one who's kissed the boot that's on their neck. Like you said, it is a question of identity. You know, something I asked you earlier, which clearly we have to do a deep dive into, but, you know, when you spoke to um, George Lopez mm -hmm. four years ago on NBC, and you were talking about his new show and politics, and then you asked him a couple of great questions. One, about racism in Hollywood, and two, they had a clip of him talking to Donald Trump, and he said something that I thought was interesting. I think you got some Latino in you. You could be. You bling out buildings. You put Trump in gold letters. That's true. We love that. That's true. You got five kids from three different baby mamas. And that answers your question as to what Latinos see in Donald Trump. They see something to aspire to, you know? And then my question is, what is the American dream to the average Latino? And and that question is so deep. We could do a whole episode That's just what with I'm, that title alone. We could alone. do a couple episodes. <laughs> One of the initial reasons that I think I might have, and I'm not saying this for every single Hispanic, but when you're an immigrant and you come to this country, assimilation is probably the most primary thing that you do. It's the priority. It's the first thing that you start. How do I fit in? How do I fit in? How do I get a job? How do I, how can I be on my best behavior so I can be accepted by white businesses, by white schools? There's almost a subconscious desire. You don't articulate it. You kind of just do it where you try to be white because white is paradise. It's where nothing goes wrong and we're visitors and we don't want to be visitors. So I'm going to become a citizen. I'm going to start speaking like a white American. There's a lot of that going on. There's also groups that want to be black like I was when I was a kid. But parents at some point when you start aging, when you start retiring, Something happens to the mind, man, especially the Hispanic mind. And Trump, for some reason, has resonated with a lot of older Hispanics that voted him in. That, to me, is one of the reasons that I do feel that there's a lot of Hispanic Trump supporters today. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and and I'm what calls to mind, everything you were saying calls to mind, uh, I don't know if you're the famous uh, Muhammad Ali interview uh, on why is everything so white. Mother, how come is everything white? I said, why is Jesus white with blonde and blue eyes? Why is the Lord's Supper all white men? Angels are white. Pope, 
and the Mary and every, even the angels. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, well, what happened to all the black angels when they took the pictures? <laughs> she, <laughs> I, said, I said, oh, I know. If the white folks was in heaven, too, then the black angels were in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. If you grow up in a society, uh, in a culture, and like you said, white is paradise. You know, assimilate, assimilate or die, assimilate or or be invisible, you know. And what they don't realize is to assimilate is to be invisible. You've been hearing a lot about cancel culture as of late. Harper's Bazaar magazine recently wrote an article uh, that was arguing in favor of tolerating uh, these opinions against what they call ideological conformity. And a lot of these people were like, you know, Noam Chomsky, J.K. Rowling. And the backlash came from that. And and I started thinking, canceling Goya. I mean, how much are we going to cancel? If if we continue canceling, what is going to be left of society, man? Dude, I I will say I disagree. Okay. I've thought a lot about cancel quote unquote culture. And I, I look at cancel culture is like electricity or nuclear weapons or, or gunpowder. Okay. Gunpowder. It's a great invention and it can be used for a lot of good but it also can be used, uh, you know, for evil, for Mm -hmm. bad things. It can be overused. It can be, all power can be abused. All power can be abused. And cancel culture is literally the society, public opinion saying no, saying no, we don't buy it. No good. It's over. You're canceled. And you know what? The court of public opinion has always existed. As a person of color, as a black person, are you kidding? Do, do I think, I, I think that, that too long have they kept us down. That the essence of the Black Lives Matter movement is that it, our, our, our lives matter just as much as anybody's. Not more, but just as much. And that, you know, th- th- to me, cancel culture, sure. Can it get out of hand? Sure. Does it need to exist? Absolutely. Uh, there was this article in The Guardian uh, written by Nezreen Malik who said that cancel culture war is really about old elites losing power in the social Absolute. media age. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> Boom. Man, and, and what have we said about generations? You know, uh, especially OK Boomers, right? What is happening with these old generations that are not seeing themselves reflected anymore? They don't resonate. What they said is dismissed and they're losing power, which means they're losing revenue, which means they're losing relevance, which means their brand takes a hit. Their companies take a hit. Right. And they don't they there's so many older executives that want to die working. So they're 90 and then they died. Okay, now you young and now you can take it. So they don't believe in retirement. They don't believe in giving other generations a voice. So this generation has felt like they need to then take it. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, all this canceling is really not coming from old people. It's coming from the young people. Well, not only that, but here's my take on canceling and cancel culture. Cancel culture is accountability. That's what it is, okay? Mm-hmm. It may be harsh accountability. It may be like, wow, I did this a long time ago, and now this is coming back. Oh, should I? Well, hey, okay, you know what it will be? Just like everything else in our culture. it's an, You are being made an example of. So you know what? Don't do that shit. Right. <laughs> don't do that shit. You know what? You don't get on they don't get on Facebook and say some racist shit. Don't get on. Don't give your opinion. Nobody needs to hear your opinion. Tell your friends, tell your family. Don't get on social media and talk about stupid shit that you have no concept of and you have no right to be saying anything about. Now, saying you saying you have no right, does that mean no free speech? Okay. You have free speech. You can get on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and say any stupid shit you want. But guess what? You might get canceled. (laughs) 
this barrage of diversity programming that's been coming out. Wonder Years, Fred Savage, Danica Makalar, uh, it's getting a reboot, and this time it's going to be black. And it reminds me of that Party of Five show where they rebooted it with a Latin X family. It didn't work out. Will this work uh, because perhaps blacks resonate better? Latino shows just aren't really sticking, you know, the way that many thought. Batwoman now is black. I'm happy about that. Not that I had a problem with the white bat uh, woman, bat girl. So that's exciting. And I think it'll actually make me watch it now that I'm seeing a black superhero female. 1619, which is the project that Nicole Hannah-Jones at the New York Times created, won a Pulitzer for it. Oprah Winfrey is going to be doing a TV show and I think a film about it. Lena Horne, the great jazz musician, uh, singer. She's getting the limited limited series TV treatment. And Joy Reid from MSNBC, who was on the weekend uh, anchoring, she's now going to be taking over Chris Matthews' job at 7 p.m. And that's part of the primetime lineup. Is this all just show to then go back to a white programming? Or does this... Will this have an effect? Will people support these type of castings? I think that on the one hand, there's no point in doing a black version of a white show, like a black odd couple or black honeymooners, if there is nothing to say, okay? With the black odd couple, they just use the same old scripts and just recast it. That made no sense to me, okay? Mm, that made okay. no more sense. So, so, so the idea of just casting for just, just visual sake... It's really about commentary. Well, it's not so much about commentary as it is about perspective. What makes me think this Wonder Years could work is that Wonder Years took place in the 60s. And the 60s was a very specific time if you were young and you were white. If you were young and black Mm. in the 60s, that was a very different time. Okay. And, And that perspective, I've never seen. Okay, and that perspective, I would tune into. I never watched The Wonder Years. Oh, I, dude, okay, I, okay, I don't care. watched it religiously every week. Fred's, first of all, Fred Savage looked like my brother Alex when they were both young. And so I related to him. I also related to young love because I felt like my adolescent years, romance, I was rejected by every single girl, you know, growing up. And so through the innocence of of Danica McElroy and Fred Savage's you know characters and the nerdy role by Josh Savino, which by the way ended up becoming my lawyer for this contract I did for Consumer Reports. Stop! Yeah, I swear to God, it's like crazy. Your lawyer um, is a co- a character from from the Wonder Years. Josh Saviano, the the kid with the glasses and the, and the nose, you know, and and and, and I was like, I, I felt like fanning over him, but I was like, yeah, yeah. I love that show. The black version should probably resonate better, and I can't wait. I'm almost excited to see this reboot. I I think it's great that Fred Savage is one of the producers on it, and he got uh, a good friend of his, Saladin K. Patterson, who's one of the minds behind Big Bang Theory and a writer from Two and a Half Men and Frasier, and and, you know he's been in the business forever. So, is he African American? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And he wrote. Frasier and Big Bang Theory? He's an African-American who wrote 31 episodes of Frasier. Okay. Okay, can you explain that to me? How uh, that came out of a mind of a black man? Dude, listen. Because those shows are I'll so tell you. I'll tell you. White. I'll tell you because every white and Latino person knows more about white culture than whites know about <laughs> ours. Okay. <laughs> you know it's true. Oh, my God. You know Truth. it's true. Okay, Truth. so. Truth. Yeah. Could I write for any of those shows? Yes, I could, because I get it. You know, you get white people as well as anybody. They don't get us, we get them. So on this week's episode, we're very happy to have George Lopez on the show. We talked about here about the role of comedy uh, in his life right now, how he preps for a Netflix show after being away from stand-up comedy for a while. Latino presidents, he touched upon that in his special. Will we ever see that in our lifetime? And I asked him, simply point blank, why haven't you ever been to Mexico City to do your Mexican stand-up? Well, let's unleash him now. Chingo! I love my community. I love Latino people all over the world. We don't know each other, but we follow this simple rule. You fuck with one bean, you fuck with the whole burrito. George Lopez, how are you, my friend? 
I'm good. So we got a chance to check out the new, uh, your new show. We'll do it for half. Tell me about the story of how you wanted to create this stand-up comedy show. Uh, It's your first time with Netflix. I'm shocked that you haven't done this with Netflix before. Has Netflix pursued you before to try and get a contract down, to get a George Lopez show on? How did the business side of getting this show done, and how important was it for you to work with Netflix finally? Uh, Let's see. Um, I've gone over to Netflix to pitch them some ideas for animation, a couple of ideas for shows. We were in there one time maybe four years ago now with Ted Sarandos and the original creators of my first show. So there, you know, when the show ended, it ended under like a cloud of the president of ABC allegedly was involved with some actresses on different shows. So at that particular time in 2007, he made a lot of his decisions based on where can I put these girls into shows, into ABC shows. So once my original show got to 120, there wasn't really a reason for ABC to keep it on because it wasn't produced at Disney or ABC. It was produced at Warner Brothers for ABC, just like Two and a Half Man was uh, done at Warner Brothers for CBS, Everybody Loves Raymond. So at that time, you could get a show done at a different studio and sell it to a network. So he made the decisions based on, you know, this kind of running a little bit of game on actresses. So uh, I wasn't really happy the way that it ended. So, uh, you know, I was vocal in 2007. So, you know, I I stayed friends with my original, you know, creators of the show, Bruce and, and Robert. And then we went in there, and the president of Warner Brothers TV, he made us believe that he wanted the show, but then he had made a, I have to say allegedly again, he had made an allegedly <laughs> bad deal for Fuller House, which was, when it was sold to Netflix, really kind of rebooting old shows was just mm-hmm. starting. He made a deal that wasn't complimentary to his position. Like, he made a bad deal. Wow. So, all of a sudden, Fuller House is into, like, over 100 episodes, and Netflix is really making all the yeah. money. So, when it came to my show, we said to the president of TV, well, let us at least give us the blessing to go and talk to Netflix. And if they don't like it, then it's, uh, it's, it's moot. It, it won't matter. But if they like it, then, you know, we can talk business then. So we went in there and pitched him the reboot of the show with all the kids growing up and the mom all worked out. Because one thing we always were was prepared. So we had everything laid out, 14 stories. And uh, when we were done, Ted stops and he says, well, who's going to handle the president of TV at Warner Brothers? And everybody's like, oh, man. Like, who's going to do it? And then he said, I will. So... Since, since Ted and the president of Warner Brothers were kind of at odds because of the bad deal that the president of Warner Brothers made, he said that he wanted a million dollars per episode to license my show to Netflix, and Netflix said, we can't do that. Like, it's, it's too much. Well, that's the price. So when people ask me, how come your show never got rebooted? It had an opportunity to, but the president of Warner Brothers uh, allegedly wanted so much that it was never going to happen because he was trying to just save face. So, you know, Netflix had been a place where, you know, clearly, you know, it became the largest streaming service in the world. I was still kind of over there at HBO. I did uh, Why You Crying for Showtime. Then in 2005, I did America's Mexican and Phoenix. And then in 2009, I did Tall, Dark and Chicano. And 12, I did It's Not Me, It's You. In 18, I did The Wall, and then at, in 18, because I always, you know, was either nominated for a Grammy, never an Emmy, but quality of the shows, I think live shows, um, harder to do, harder to produce. And in 18, every, com- every comedian that was nominated for a Grammy was at Netflix. 
So I was the only one kind of really left at HBO, but they were great to me. They're, they're, they couldn't have been a better partner. So then I decided that, you know, I would go over there and then do this special for uh, Netflix. And then it, it kept getting pushed. Like they said, you know, we're going to do it uh, a year and a half ago and then release it a year ago. And then it got pushed again. And then we did it in December at the Warfield in San Francisco. And then, you know, they said, well, it's gonna be, we're going to release it in March. And then it got pushed again. But I thought that June 30th was maybe the best, the best time for it to be released because it had the biggest impact with everybody in the pandemic and everybody looking at TV and streaming more than they ever had, that it became a bigger special than the HBO specials because we're at a time like no other. So, you know, Netflix has been great. Hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll be maybe one more, I don't know, you know, maybe one more and then we'll see. But, you know, doing movies for the last couple of years, like more dramatic parts. So, you know, in this time where it's really, Everybody can, you know, not only look out for your own health, but you can take stock of your own life. Once we proceed and things go back to, you know, I can't say normal, but whatever the normal is, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how much I'm going to work beyond, beyond right now. All right. I do have a question for you. This is more of a broad question about comedy. I mean, uh, first, you know, and this is a kind of combined question. What do you think the role of comedy and a comedian is in society beyond making us laugh at ourselves or is that the purpose and does it surprise you just how relevant comedy has become in the last three and a half years during this really crazy divisive time well i think the most shocking thing first of all like when if you're a restaurant that's been open for 41 years if times change let the times change but restaurants kind of stay the same some of the restaurants that have been in business the longest still have pretty much the same menu. So in the early 90s, when things started to become politically correct, and then the internet started to come out, and then you could almost be a YouTuber and make money, and now you can, that everybody was looking at comedy a way that you wouldn't look at any other art. Like you wouldn't look at a museum and say, I don't know, man. It's like a lot of red. Like, why does the dude do so much red? <laughs> right. look, look at it as art. You're not like, what do you think about that? Like, ah, it's a lot of red. That's what I'm saying. It's a lot of red. <laughs> well, what happens now is that people look at, I think as more, the more acerbic comedians became, Chappelle, Louis C.K., Bill Maher, um, Billy Conley, even guys that were like a little edgy, you know, guys that have been doing it like that for years, they started to look at them as almost like hate speech. But in reality, comedy is comedy, and it's not for you to, to break it down. It's really kind of for you to either like it or don't like it, you know. So, so what happens is that people hate comedians. They hate this guy. They hate that guy when in the past they would just say, I don't think that guy's very funny or that kind of comedy is not for me. But now it's a atmosphere and a template that is all hateful. And if you say things that are relatively innocuous, you know, when I got it, I, you know, I got a lot of attention. They said, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to deport uh, immigrants to make the streets safer. And I said, if you want to make the streets safer, deport the police. So, that became like a huge, huge thing. So all of a sudden now, you know, we're comedians and you forget that there's, that it's humor because you don't agree with it. You turn it into something that you hate, which is, it's ridiculous to me. But the whole idea of we'll do it for half came from in, in early January that uh, Iran had offered a bounty for the leader of this country and it was $80 million dollars. And casually, I said, we'll do it for half. And, you know, the Secret Service came to my house and, you know, they started talking about whether it was funny or not. And they knew everything I'd ever done on social media. To me, that's a little bit, that's beyond where we should hold a comedian responsible. Uh, I completely agree. I wanted to talk to you about the preparation for, for, for this particular show. Um, I've heard you say that you took about close to a year uh, where you were going to towns that had never probably even seen you before working on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, crafting what you were doing. 
Um, at this stage of your career, do you enjoy the hard work or the labor that goes into creating a show like this? And is the outcome as fulfilling as it used to be once before? You know, that's a good question. You know, the, all the other ones I had done live. So in, in 2017, maybe Eddie Murphy got a Mark Twain award at the Kennedy Center. And I, I went over there, you know, all, everybody was there, Chappelle and Arsenio, Gregory, Chris Rock, all the, all the great comedians were there. And I, I did a little bit of a speech for Eddie, but then I did a little bit of stand-up and it got quite a reception in that room. And I thought, if I do my next HBO thing, they were looking at doing it on Broadway. I said, why don't I do it here with everything that's going on in DC, the Kennedy Center, there's, there's not a place that's more eclectic and, and a better place than, you know, the Kennedys and, and what they believe and, and the idea of whole free speech is what the woman said to me. Listen, I said to her after the first show, I'm sorry, but it's a little bit too much. She's like, are you crazy? This is, <laughs> this place was built on free speech. So, so, to get ready for it, the only way I think you can properly get ready for it is to get out of your comfort zone. We rent a bus and go on a tour bus to Cedar Rapids and Davenport, Iowa, through Cleveland, through up to New, upstate New York and Boston, and you know, on a bus, you know, riding all night and then to another town. And it, it, it kind of gives you, I don't think anybody, I'm not sure if anybody really does it that way, but it gave me the opportunity to not second guess myself because I was taking all the chances over there and I just felt like I had my legs, I had my voice, I had the material, I had over the amount of material. And that's really kind of, you know, if you're a boxer and you go, man, I hope this doesn't go 12 rounds because fuck, I only train for nine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to have more wind than what you're going to need. You have to have more material that you're than, than what you're gonna uh, need, and the craziest shit I tell you, man, nobody really kind of understands. The craziest shit is when you get in there and you start strong, and you you know you you're like I want to start strong, bam, 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 you know, applause, this shifting directions, bam, and then there's a clock on the bottom of the floor <laughs> there. <laughs> so if I look down, and in my mind I say. I got 35 minutes left because that's where I'll go. I'll think, okay, 35 or less, I'm good. If it says, you know, 45, I'm fucked because I'm like, I'm, I've already shot a lot of the stuff that was supposed to be better at the end. So you look down and you see 22 minutes, you know, you have 22 minutes left. You're like, oh man, this is, I got it. I got it. You can't be ruled by the right. clock, but you have to look at it time and you have to look at it and be on the other side of the good time and not behind <laughs> it because then you're like oh man because now you're live and you're just starting to go like okay what did I pass what did I forget and you stop a second feels like a minute so you just have to make sure that everything is right you know when I used to watch boxing and the guy would lose and they would say you know what, what happened man and the fighter would say you know what man I couldn't let, I couldn't let my punches go and just, I didn't feel, you know, I just didn't feel myself today. Doing the specials live taught me that you have to be your best that day. You have to get all the rest. And you, you, I would approach it like doing a, like a fighter would approach, approach a fight to be at your optimum at that particular time, at that particular night. I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, why it is that a comedic actor or a comedian can make the transition to drama, get win Oscars, but it's a lot more difficult for a dramatic actor to be funny. There are a few notable, you know, exceptions, but there are a lot more success stories where a comedian, somebody who made you laugh, can make you cry. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I think one of the things is that if you're a comedian, like Robin Williams, or you look at Billy Crystal, you look at Jackie Gleason, you look at I don't know if Tom Hanks did it, but Michael Keaton did stand up, Kevin Pollack, uh, through the whole, you know, back in time. Richard Pryor was a pretty good dramatic actor. George Carlin was a pretty good actor, didn't do it that much. But you're writing your experiences, you're writing from your life, and you're writing from happiness and loss. So there's a depth to your comedy that has pathos, it has gravitas, you know, so you're, 
you're talking about things that are hard and it's not like somebody wrote these hundred pages for you. They give them to you and then you interpret those words. That's what makes it the transition for people to do comedy tough because it's not, it's very still comedy. You know, it's, it's not broad is clearly, you know, you're not going to win an award for, for being broad, but the detail of it is, is very still and it has to come from a real place. And I always found it interesting when I would see actors walk past my show that they just look very disconnected because they were reading words that they didn't write. Right. So I think the tougher the background or the place, the more place of something real you can draw from those experiences. And that's what Ben Kingsley told me when I interviewed him one time that I take all of the bad things in my life and I put them in a bottle and then when I need them, I open up that oh. and just let a little, a little bit of it out. You, you talked a lot of things about in your show. You talked about family. You talked about uh, aging. But you also talked about the Latino president. And I was, I was really thinking hard about this because we got Julian Castro that was a pres- presidential nominee. Marco Rubio was also a presidential uh, candidate. Is it enough to just have a Latino president? Or is it the right Latino president? And how do you discern that? I think you have to have the qualifications. I mean, clearly, you know, we tried this, this method here where somebody were to say, well, I like that he's not a politician, which is horrible. That's almost like saying, uh, I want to have surgery, but the dude's not a doctor. I like that he's not a doctor. <laughs> you know, I like that he's not a doctor. <laughs> Those other guys, I like that he's, that he's never taken counsel about before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that person, I think we're wrapped up in color, which I understand because it's never been a level playing field. But also, when it's for everybody, I think the reason that there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of disdain, there's a lot of disrespect, is that some people think that because of who you are, you get a pass or you get things easier, maybe affirmative action or whatever, but you're not keeping a job and you're not staying in your job if you're not able to do that job. So maybe the opportunity can be presented, but also doesn't mean that you're going to be there for the rest of your life or move up or be, you know, president of that company one day. You have to just be learned on everything that you want to do. You know, there's there, you know, somebody can give you an opportunity, but if you're not ready, I don't care whatever color you are, you're not going to get to the next level. And I, and I, and it's unfortunate that in, in these times that are so filled with hate that people would fight that hard just to be considered equal. Like people, they're fighting in stores and and they're fighting in the parks and all those people that are, you know, road rage, just because you don't, they don't want to see people of color even as equals. And when somebody's fighting that hard to keep other people suppressed and oppressed in 2020, we have a long way to go. So instead of looking at people like groups, because we're not, we, we might be a group, but we're not a group when we wake up. That individual has to be the one that's going to change shit for himself and not looking mm. to change it for the community. You have to change it for yourself. You, you say, okay, I get up. I don't want to go to school. You know, I signed up for these classes. It's kind of really what I want to do, but it's a pain in the ass. If you want to be good at anything, it's not going to be easy. So a lot of people quit, and when they quit, you've already built in yourself a bow for failure. Like, oh, man, I was trying to be this, you know, an x-ray technician, but, you know, school closed. But there's other schools. they got other places. So we, we have to be able to want to do something for ourselves and not wait for the group to meet and say, we're going to do this for the group. We're an individual much more than we are in groups and we can't agree as a group anyways. So I got out of kind of that group mentality maybe 25 years ago. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do things for myself. Well, what about if you fuck with one bean, you fuck with the whole burrito? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to defend the castle, man. So, you know, you, you, know I, you know, so in that, I don't, I try never to let people get over on farm workers or people trying to raise their kids or people trying, dreamers and DACA. So 
they're all part of the burrito. So, you know, if you're the dean, <laughs> we're all part of the burrito. So you want to help them have less, less obstacles or even imagining that, you know, these kids that are in DACA, the dreamers, that they're not criminals, they go to school, they're, they're winning awards in education. And if the guy now has his way, you'd be sending these kids to a country they're unfamiliar with. Right. It's devastating to think that somebody would have that in their heart. George, when you recorded this and they told you that uh, they were going to push the show to March and then June 30th, then the George Floyd uh, incident happened. When that happened, was there any conversations of, holy shit, man, we've missed this incredible opportunity to have George Lopez touch on the George Floyd issue, touch on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Was there any discussions on maybe reshooting the show to include what would be explosive in the hands of George Lopez to talk about these particular topics? Or at some point, did you just go, you know what, that's, it was meant to be like that without the George Floyd incident. And let's just see what happens. Well, I mean, I mean, it's, all, all of those situations are just heartbreaking. And, but I knew that they wouldn't go back in there and do it again. I know they wouldn't put like an amendment to it or, you know, record newer stuff and put it in there because it's kind of like, you know, they edited already. It was kind of done in March. There wasn't a way that um, that was going to be done because it's too much. I said, hey, we can't go back to the Warfield Man. I just kind of like just shoot it without anybody in there and just add it. And they're like, no, nah, you can't do that. It's too, it's too much to do. But, you know, I had a friend of mine when I was eight, 19 or 20 that got shot by a police officer unarmed in front of his house. And <clears throat> those things are just, man, at 59, to be heartbroken by what you see, like what George Floyd went through and what everybody goes through that people that get slammed by the police, people that get pulled over, you know, people that get shot. It's just, it's, it's, I, I mean, for as, for as long as it's happening, I never thought it, I thought it was bad then. Never thought it would reach a level to where it destroys you to even watch this poor person. And, and then again, if you try to go in as a group, nobody really wants to, I mean, they want to, but then it dissipates. So, you know, when people say to me, like, you know, Vanessa Guillen, like, how come you're not taking you know, her, her position or, or how come you're not mm-hmm. supporting her? I do, I do it the right way. I don't just do it as a post. I do it by getting in contact with her family, offering my services, saying if there's anything that I can do, please let me know. Any way I can help, please let me know. So, I mean, Richard Pryor did it. You know, Richard Pryor did police brutality yes, did. stuff in 79, you know, 40 years ago. So, um, or 30, yeah, 40 years ago. So, so, if they say, what's off limits? And I go, I think just, that stuff is just, it's just so, it's just so devastating to somebody and to their family and to their legacy of their family that it's almost, it would be almost too difficult to talk about. I agree. You know, I wanted to ask your, your question about, you know, the power of comedy and, and cultural identity. You know, to me, uh, I, I, one of the things I love about your comedy and the special is, you know, I'm not Mexican. I didn't grow up in a Mexican household, but even if I don't specifically know, you know, you know, some of the characters from your family, we have something similar. So <laughs> it kind of brings us all together. And, and I love that it's a glimpse. If for a minute I, I'm getting it, I'm getting it more than I ever could. What are your thoughts on, on how, you know, comedy specifically can really help shape not only cultural identity, but shape it to those who watch it. Well, you know, to be selfish, like my grandmother was, my grandmother was, my grandmother was pretty amazing, man. I mean, she was just a <laughs> contradiction of, she would, talk, she would talk about somebody, and then if that somebody came and said, I heard you talking about me, she'd be like, I, I didn't say nothing. <laughs> so... You know, I, I can only stay from what my experiences are, but I know that they're all everybody's experience. Like that's your everybody has an aunt, everybody has an uncle. Like my grandmother hated for anybody to stand up and talk about if does anybody have any questions? Like, how come we have to just be here 
And I know I give him his water. My grandma would be like, sit your fat ass down. <laughs> hated to have attention drawn to her. I mean, I was seven. And a, a, a black man, a white woman, 768, walked in front of our car. And I, I looked at my grandma. And she goes, what? I go, check it out. Check it out. I said, what if they're in love? And she goes, what if they're in love? If you love them so much, why don't you go over there with them? Because if they have a baby, you're going to be the color of the baby. <laughs> I mean, just go from zero to 100 in, in, in no time flat. And I just, I mean, in somebody that's, never had any joy in her life. It was the only way that she could feel any emotion was to, she wouldn't tell you, you know, I think that's beautiful that they have that baby. Uh, she would just take the opposite. But, you know, when some, like my, you know, through the therapy, you know, the guy goes, hey, if you brought somebody who's sight impaired to your house and they knocked over your lamp and broke it, would you get mad? And I go, no, because they can't see. And he goes, well, your grandmother can't see. Like she never learned those things were never taught to her by whoever raised her. So it's impossible to teach you what she, she can't teach you what she doesn't know. Right. And it kind of started to make, kind of started to make sense that they can't, they can't, she couldn't do it. She couldn't say it. My last question, George, is about the, the complexity of the Hispanic identity in America, especially with Mexicans. You're Mexican American, but Mexicans in Mexico feel differently about Mexican Americans. And I was wondering, has George Lopez ever gone to Mexico City to do a one-night epic stand-up tour? How do, you think, how do you think that would fall with Mexicans in Mexico, having America's Mexican there? Well, you know, I think they love to, they would love to just shut down on you just for the idea of shutting down on you. Like, hey, don't come over here and try to talk about how it is, but there's a different, it's a different vibe. Like they have their own comedians. They have their own legacy of comedy. They have their own, Eugenio Derbez is, uh, you know, successful here, much broader and much more of a character than I am. Like I'm me. And then I, I, you know, recall my situations, but over there, I don't think it would be accepted as much because there is kind of like this hate, hate thing. You know, even when De La Hoya was fighting and they <laughs> fought Julio Cesar Chavez. Yeah. He was behind Chavez because he was from Mexico and not with Oscar because he was from Los Angeles. So like Edward James almost said in Selena, like you're not enough, you're not Mexican enough for them and you're not American enough for here. But then again, that's why I say just focus on the individual and let your story be your narrative instead of trying to speak for everybody in Mexico. Got it. Everybody in a Latin American country, I just, I just create the things that I think are funny. I'm not worried about how the people in Brazil will react or the people in, you know, Guanajuato or anybody in Mexico. I did a movie in Mexico that's coming out next year called No Man's Land, and I went to a bar, and then you have these bougie Mexicans with money. And <laughs> it's called the bartender. Tell that dude it's closed. And the bartender came over the day with clothes. I said, what do you mean you're What about these dudes right here? So they profiled me in Mexico and, and threw me out of the bar. So, <laughs> wow. 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 That's like so, so, so. As far as unity, I think the unity, if you go and you tell somebody like, you know, the guys that come here, when I was 20, uh, we all, all my friends went to apply for jobs with the city and my job went to the sanitation department and then I took the interview at the sanitation department and the guy said to me, why do you want to be a garbage man? I said, you want to work for the city? It's steady work. The guy's like, you know, I don't know what you want to do with your life, but I said, you know, you you might not be at the back of the truck very long. You'll be a driver like in a year. I think you'll be a driver in a year. And then that, that's what made me think that, do I really want to do this or what do I really want to do? And I wanted to do this. I was already doing it. And I said, why would I go do that when it's going to take me further away from what I really want to do? Mm -hmm. And then I kind of used 
I went to the interview thinking I would take the job, but after talking to that guy, he scared me because all of a sudden you could be there for 30 years. And now and the guys that come here, they know me, and occasionally they'll stop and I'll talk to them because I see myself as them. I don't see myself as above them or, or better than them. I see myself like them. I don't see myself any any different than they. Or, you know, they pass by and they wave and you go like, hey, what's up? You know, that's that. I never got away from that. Like, I've always done that and I never got away from that. And I think sometimes if you see somebody and you're able to put your hand on their shoulder and go, hey, man, I like what you're doing, man. Keep it up. Hey, you know, time goes by really fast, so don't waste any time. You tell a 17-year-old kid, let's focus on what you want to do first. There's time for all that stuff later. That you might not, if you wait for a group to tell you that, you might wait 10, 15 years. Better to get the message sooner than later. I just want to admit to you that we want to steal your line that you used in your promo on Twitter, the glue that holds together two cultures. Uh, because uh, <laughs> Jack and I, part of the reason we started this show was just because we felt there needed to be more unity. What are your thoughts on, especially in this time, black and brown people really coming together and seeing that, sure, there are differences, but they, we got a lot more in common. Okay, I agree with that. I think it's a great idea. I love seeing you guys together. So here's, here's what happens. So when you have Black Lives Matter and you have marches and you have those things, I see a lot on Instagram, like, why do we have to stand up for them when they're not standing up for us? Mm. And then you stand with Black Lives Matter, they look at you as a punk. You're not standing with your own people. And they're like, man, you know what? You're not doing anything for us. And then you're doing everything for them. Well, I say that <clears throat> you don't barter, you know, they don't help us and so we're not going to help them. You help them because it's the right thing to do. It's the human thing to do. So anybody that says, well, they don't do anything for us, that person needs to work on themselves. Like, I'm not going to change their mind. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of street vendors here in Los Angeles that are getting their ass kicked by African-American guys. And oh, wow. Okay. Oh, wow. No. That's a big issue right now because those guys don't fight back. They're getting beat up, put in the hospital every day, killed. They kill a guy in Austin. That's something that us as a community, even you guys, need to – we have to try to, like, stem that because now it's become a challenge on Instagram of videotaping yourself beating some dude that's just selling ice cream trying to make a living. Right. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what color they are. Because it's just bad, but it needs to be addressed because it's becoming a challenge. You know, it's becoming a, it's becoming a thing. That's, that's how we remove people are from feelings that they can't imagine that that, that guy has a family. That guy, you know, right. has daughters and a wife and he's trying to provide. And right. then you come comes home bloody or is in the hospital. Right. It, it ruins your, as a kid, it, it just chips off part of your innocence and you're not going to ever get that back. Well, George, uh, thank you very much for your humor. Thank you very much for your wisdom and insights. And the name of the show is George Lopez. We'll do it for half. It's currently on Netflix right now. And I saw it, man. It's trending, brother. You guys blue that keeps the two cultures together. <laughs> <laughs> See, he blessed us now. He blessed yeah. us. <laughs> bueno, muchas gracias, George. And I'll see you on next time, man. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Beautiful. That's it for this ninth episode of Brown and Black. And if you like our show and would like to support us, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps this podcast be heard by many more people. You can reach us on Twitter at Brown and Black Pod and on our new YouTube channel, Brown and Black Podcast. Thank you and see you next week on another episode of Brown and Black. Some kind of moment.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.